You are listening to episode 16 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where Bullseye makes his move on Hornhead's former flame, and Daredevil is not happy about it. Not one bit. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. As indicated by the title, this is an ongoing podcast about Marvel's Man Without Fear, Blind Lawyer by Day, Superhero by Night, Daredevil. This week, we continue reading the Frank Miller Daredevil material, and currently, we are seeing his early tenure as penciler on the book, leading up to when he and Klaus Janssen take over the title. However, before we move forward, I have to move backwards just a little bit because I missed something at the end of last week's issue, which was issue 159, and it was something I meant to touch on. At the end of the issue, Miller drew a page detailing Daredevil's billy club, and I completely forgot to mention it. So looking back at that page, it is... it's, it's pretty good. It's reminiscent of Colin's renditions of the same material. There's a nice shot of Daredevil throwing the billy club and sequences telling us again how Matt's cane splits, how the curved end straightens... We see the grapple line, the leg holster. But the reason that it stands out a bit is that Miller's art feels more like the Miller we're going to be getting in later issues. There's more shadows, a lot of rectangles, of course, because the panels are all small, so the claustrophobic ideal is in full effect. Plus, I'm a nerd for stuff like this, like knowing the pseudoscience behind the weapons and costumes and other paraphernalia. It gives some weight to the world that our superheroes inhabit. I mean, you're talking to the guy that used to pour over the Star Trek technical manuals. This won't be the last diagram or description or outline. I just wanted to make note of it for those that would be interested. And it does make it into the reprints too, all of the ones I have gone over. However, that was last week, and for those who have slept since then, let me recap just a little bit since we are in a continuing storyline. Daredevil was targeted by Eric Slaughter's merry band of goons for hire, which he took out fairly easily. Turns out Bullseye was the one that hired them to test Daredevil and study his moves, but Daredevil doesn't know that. Yet. And when the issue wrapped, we saw Bullseye set his sights on Daredevil's former flame, the Black Widow. So when we come back, we pick up our reading with Daredevil number 160 in the hands of Bullseye. But first, this podcast promo break. Be right back right after this. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't. 
can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happening to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me, to all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms and the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. At least I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or fool. Stop. You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey is a the Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast, ffcast.libsyn.com. And we are back. This week's issue is cover dated September 1979, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, your online one-stop guide to comic release dates, it was released on June 5th, 1979. In addition to being my brother's first birthday, it was also one day before the final episode of the Amazing Spider-Man TV series aired its final episode. CBS, which was also home of the Incredible Hulk television series, axed the show for fear of it becoming the superhero network. They had Wonder Woman and Hulk. They also ran the Red Brown Captain America films. Huh? And the Doctor Strange movie. My question is, why not Daredevil? Why didn't Daredevil have a TV series during this time? If a network can make awesome shows about an older woman solving an improbable amount of murder mysteries, why not a blind lawyer? I mean, it's not too far removed from Matlock. And it could have been cool on par with the Equalizer. I mean, they could have even downplayed the more superheroic aspect a bit, and I would have been fine with that. Put it in right after Dukes of Hazard, and magic is made. But that's me daydreaming. Looking at the cover of Daredevil number 160, it depicts Bullseye looking victorious with the crumpled, unconscious body of the Black Widow slumped at his feet, with a hairdryer cord wrapped around her throat. A red, ghostly apparition of Daredevil's face angrily looks on with a shocked and angry look on his face. And you know, the cover stands out a bit, thanks to the minimalist white background. Then there's also the giant red Daredevil face to make it stand out even more. Thanks to the Daredevil omnibus, I actually got to peek at the original pencils for this cover, and I kind of expected a lot of artistic trickery with Daredevil's head. Sort of a piece of tracing paper or something to make it look transparent and give it that odd effect because it's done in full red inks. But to my surprise, it was rendered in traditional black pencil just like the rest of the image. 
I like having the signature on the curtain rod, but I'm odd about liking artist signatures when they're made integrated or organic to the image. I also like the attention to detail in the scene depicted, specifically that Black Widow isn't wearing her widow sting, which comes right out of the story in the book. Which brings me to the big question. How did they get away with this cover? This is blatant male-on-female violence. I mean, he has the hairdryer cord wrapped around her neck. Didn't we forgo putting the Human Torch in the Fantastic Four cartoon to replace him with Herbie the Robot for fear of kids lighting themselves on fire? I would be far more worried about little Tommy wrapping the handy-dandy hairdryer cord around his sister's neck. This is a brutal image. Now, I want to hold the rest of that thought for a moment, because it does play into the first scene. So let's take a look at the scene in the comic that inspired this cover. Our story this week is entitled In the Hands of Bullseye, written once again by Roger McKenzie, penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joseph Rosen, and colored by Glynis Ween. The Black Widow swings across New York, returning to her apartment. As she settles in for the night, removing her widow sting, she hears a voice call her name. It's Bullseye, and he takes the widow by surprise by throwing a hairbrush at her. Now she dodges it, but every defense she has gets cut through as Bullseye is a formidable foe. She gets away from being choked by the hairdryer, as seen on the cover, but Bullseye overpowers her and stops her from fleeing by bringing a chandelier down on the widow's head. Before taking the Black Widow away, Bullseye leaves a calling card, a newspaper clipping showing the Black Widow's picture and the target symbol drawn in red on it. A clear message for Daredevil. Well, clearly Bullseye isn't afraid to choke a widow, so let me pick up my thought process here as the cover and the opening scene are pretty brutal. Now, my palate can handle this, not because I enjoy scenes of abuse on women. Not at all. I don't like those at all. But, because this is fiction and these are superhero types, I can tolerate it. Had this been a scene with a, you know, normal husband and wife, I might have balked a little bit and been a little bit uncomfortable. This comic was accessible on newsstands by all ages. The comic's code seal is right there on the cover. So my immediate question was, how did they get past the code? I know that they were writing and drawing this to right up to, right up to the edge of the code, as much as they could possibly get away with. So I looked up the actual comic's code and what it said in regards to such scenes. And I was actually really impressed with this opening scene in context with the code. As far as what would potentially, underline the word potentially, affect this, I found these words. The code states, Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. Now one word stands out, but I'm going to hold that off to the side. So we come to the question, is the violence excessive? Well, it borders on it. Now there's no blood, there's no gore, and beyond the choking panels, which are two, there are two panels of this, most of the actual violence involves a vase to the widow's nose and the chandelier falling on her. There's no stabbing, there's no mutilating, nothing that directly violates the code. However, there is this, directly from the code, scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Now, don't roll your eyes. There's one word shared in both of these segments. Now, I know there aren't vampires and werewolves, but torture. Torture, that word appeared in both. We do verge on torture. I mean, being choked by a hairdryer cord is pretty much up on the Family Feud survey board as far as torture goes. And the dictionary definition of torture is the act of inflicting excruciating pain as punishment or revenge as a means of getting a confession or information or for sheer cruelty. Da, there we are. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, torture. 
the code has been violated, at least by 1954 standards. Now, by 1979, it had become quite a bit more relaxed. I think the reason that the scene hits such a noticeable level of brutality is Bullseye could have pegged Natasha on the head with something and knocked her out right out of the gate. He had the drop on her. He could have used a dart with a sleeping agent on it. But what we're seeing here is Bullseye having fun with the Black Widow before he finishes the task that he's set out to achieve. This, and credit goes to Roger McKenzie on this, shows just how sadistic Bullseye is. Just in case we forgot, he's a mean Mamma Jamma and he enjoyed every moment of this assault. And clearly it's effective at, at stating this point, because it's, this scene stood out in my mind for years. So, very effective opening, but does the rest of the issue stack up to this opening salvo? Let's get back to it and find out. Elsewhere on this rainy day, Heather Glenn visits the grave of her father along with Matt, Foggy, and pretty much the whole staff of the storefront law firm. Heather tries to get Matt to promise that he won't be playing Daredevil when she needs him, and Matt waffles a bit. He tries to mutter that he has certain responsibilities, and what have you, but Heather slaps him and storms off. Apparently that relationship has ended. While Foggy and friends want to comfort Matt, they assume that he would rather be alone. They are wrong, as Matt is sulking around his brownstone later, thinking about how he hates to be alone. He looks out the window at a familiar young couple who seems so happy, more on that in a moment, and then decides to seek the counsel of somebody who will understand, so he suits up his daredevil, rushes out of his skylight exit, and heads over to Natasha's place, but when he gets there, he finds the mess left behind from Bullseye's invasion, and the note left for him. Matt knows that Natasha is in the hands of Bullseye. Oh boy. Um, the scene with Matt, Heather, Foggy, pretty much the whole cast of the book at the grave of Heather's father is, in a word, awkward. Not just because she and Matt have an argument, but that's kind of a private moment. And I get supporting a friend or loved one, but only by invitation. I mean, going to your father's grave should be a quiet, uh, solemn event, and Matt kind of overstepped his bounds by bringing everyone. And as Matt and Heather argue quietly, Foggy and company have nothing to do but watch and twiddle their thumbs. And Matt once again wins Boyfriend of the Year by being too honest. In that way that is not at all. Heather needs support. Especially from her boyfriend. And in this instance, it happens that her boyfriend was involved with the death of her father. He's not directly involved, but Matt failed to prevent it in her eyes. And Heather, I mean, I'm going to be honest, she's a bit out of line. She accuses Matt of not being there for her father because he was busy playing Daredevil, quotation marks. Matt, as Daredevil, was trying to quell the criminal activity done by her father by way of the Purple Man, and that is not playing. Heather is putting more on Matt's shoulders than he needs, and I'm not saying that Matt's response or lack of was the way to go, but he was kind of trapped. It was kind of a sneaky trick on her part. And I'm just going to say what I'm thinking right now. I'm going to call Heather what she is. Karen Page Light. I know what you're thinking, but let me explain. When I started this show, I had a deep disdain for Karen Page, but as I read some of the stories more intently, I began to understand her. So now I may not like her, but I get her. Heather, however, I was a bit more familiar with beyond just the concept of Karen Page. I knew Heather a bit more. I'd read a solid cross-section of stories with Heather in them, but I don't see the shreds of redeeming qualities in her. I thought I would grow to understand Heather in the same way I did with Karen, but as I did my cursory reading of the omnibus, I wound up empty-handed on that. And I think it comes down to the fact that she is a pastiche of Karen, but she has none of the history of Karen. 
none of the chemistry with Matt, which I will not deny that the two had a degree of chemistry. And I don't see what Matt sees in Heather. Karen, I understood. Karen was beautiful. She was part of Matt's life. But Heather is just vapid and boring. Now, I will say this with full disclosure. There are things that are done to Heather that we are going to see that Heather doesn't actually deserve. Now, it's down the line, but I wanted to say that since I'm going on a small rant about how much I don't like Heather. But to bring it back to this scene between Matt and Heather, they're both dumb, incompetent lovers. They should not be together. Matt should probably not be with anybody beyond maybe Natasha. However, this argument leads to an excellent scene with Matt hanging out in his brownstone, moping around and lonely. If you'll recall, several episodes back, I told you about my Daredevil playlist that I listen to when I'm writing my notes and the song Have You Ever Seen the Rain by Credence Clearwater Revival and how that song put an image in my head. This image on this page is the germ of that. Specifically, this panel with Matt, he's silhouetted against a window. His shadow is cast on the floor from the light outside and it's Daredevil's shadow. Now, the colors here nail it for me. The image is great in its composition, but the colors, you have the window, and beyond the window, it's blue. There's a blue background behind the window. But the light, as it's cast across the floor, is framed in red. And it says a lot. I mean, it speaks volumes to Matt's loneliness. In fact, for a sequence where, I mean, let's be honest, Matt mopes around, it simply nails the character. And it helps that the brownstone is drawn a bit more like a castle. And it's full of furniture and statues, it gives it a closed-in feel. As for the couple that Matt spies, and I know if you're looking at the comic, you know what it is, it's actually Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson walking by with an umbrella for the storm that's still going on. And that umbrella is a nice bit of continuity since there was a rain show at the graveyard when Matt and Heather fought. But looking upon Peter and Mary Jane, oh, how young and carefree they look. Who would have ever guessed that this couple who is so in love would ever, I don't know, Make a deal with Mephisto to erase it all? Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to go on a rant on this, but that's for another podcaster to take on. This is not a Spider-Man podcast. All of that is going on outside the brownstone. Inside the brownstone, there's just one more panel that just swings for the fences. See, Matt sits on his couch depressed. It's not an exciting panel, but look closer and remember Frank Miller's focus on rectangles. Matt is, of course, in a rectangle panel, but he's sitting on a sectional sofa which sort of frames him in another rectangle and the sofa sits on a larger rectangle rug. The kicker is the rug has a rectangular checker pattern on it. So it's rectangle on top of rectangle on top of rectangle and it creates a prison for Matt. He's not quite in a glass prison of emotion but the image does what it's supposed to and I never noticed it before this read through. And I will extend that to the sequence where Matt suits up as Daredevil and the panels get incredibly small to speed up the scene and ramp up the excitement level as he heads to Natasha's. I mean, I almost hear a Danny Elfman style score as the cane is split, the togs come on, the mask is in place, the skylight opens and Daredevil bounds into the sky. Say what you will about Frank Miller, but he knows how to move a page and keep the storytelling elements popping. However, it's got to be said, it's convenient that Matt happened to decide to visit Natasha on that very night. Had he gone another direction and decided to turn on Sanford and Son and relax, the Black Widow might well have been in some trouble. I mean, I picture Bullseye sitting around and waiting and waiting, and eventually he would just break down and suggest a game of Parcheesi with the Widow to pass the time. Maybe some Chinese takeout, I don't know. 
But now Matt is on Bullseye's trail, which takes us to the next phase of this issue. Let's get back to the story. Daredevil pays a visit to Ben Urich at the Daily Bugle to see what information has been coming down the pipeline on Bullseye. Ben doesn't have much, but four days earlier, Bullseye escaped by killing his psychiatrist and taking a hostage. But nothing since then. Matt takes off doing the whole Batman disappearing while Gordon is in mid-sentence thing, and Ben pulls out a file on Daredevil. A file that's put under M. M for Murdoch. Matt goes to a seedy joint called Josie's Bar in plain clothes to pump the criminal clientele for information on Bullseye's whereabouts, but when Turk and some of Slaughter's men overhear the conversation, things get ugly. A fight breaks out, and in the calamity, Matt changes to Daredevil and makes a very prominent statement. He wants Bullseye. The patrons try to gang up on Daredevil, but get thrown out the window of the bar for their trouble, and Matt focuses directly on Turk. He tells Turk to find Bullseye, and when he does, tell him that Daredevil is coming. And so ends issue 160. Now our first stop on this segment was Peter Parker's stomping grounds, the Daily Bugle, and this newsroom is hopping. If you look closely, you can see Robbie Robertson in the background going over the paper's layout, and there's a nameless reporter being handed some paperwork, groaning about another Spider-Man expose. So Spider-Man kind of makes an appearance in this issue, in a tertiary kind of way. And there's a large poster of the Daily Bugle's head honcho, J. Jonah Jameson, stating that hard work never hurt anybody. I mean, this poster is very Big Brother from 1984, and that's what makes me love it. I like the small detail of Daredevil having a towel around his neck to try to dry off from the rain, and he's kind of casually hanging around the offices. Like, this is what he does, he just shows up. The staff are rubbernecking a bit, but Ben Yurik is as cool as a cucumber because, you know, superheroes come to hang out at his desk on the daily. Not really, but you would think that is the case. Miller once again uses rectangles in the form of clocks hanging from the ceiling and a wall of glass partitions in the background, as well as the air conditioning vents along the ceiling. Now, in this instance, I think it's more like a common-sense approach to architecture in a real newsroom. Since the Bugle was, notably, around in the 60s when Peter Parker started there, the building would still have some older, more plain interior layouts. I mean, the offices wouldn't look like an Apple store. There wouldn't be minimalist structures like we see today in the more modern offices. And let's be honest, Jonah is a tightwad. There wouldn't be renovations or anything. It feels old, it feels very function-oriented rather than decorative. And I dig that. It feels at home and real. And I like that Yurik is a good source. Normally you'd expect Daredevil to visit, you know, the police. That would be the more expected choice. But reporters tend to have stuff coming down the wire, and they're a bit more accessible. Either way, this feeds into the plots that are moving forward, both the immediate Bullseye situation and Ben investigating Matt. But let's talk about Bullseye's escape because it is simply awesome. Bullseye, in mid-therapy session, uses a tape recorder microphone, well, the cord from the tape recorder microphone, to strangle his therapist. And then he uses the therapist's pipe to knock out the guard, steal the guard's gun, and then take a nurse hostage. Why is he always choking people? So now, let's kind of keep track of this. We've seen Bullseye use trash as a missile, rope, paper airplanes, a life preserver, he shot a man out of a cannon at Daredevil, which... You know a villain has to be hardcore when he uses a dude as ammo. And speaking of that, he shot Daredevil out of a giant crossbow, and now a pipe for fine smoking tobacco. This breakout is good, but we're going to see one that eclipses this one by a landslide. However, Daredevil steals Batman's trick of leaving in mid-conversation, and then he leaps across the sky with a bolt of lightning behind him. Wait, wait a minute. A bolt of lightning. Miller will make a very, very famous cover 
of none other than Batman leaping across the sky with a streak of lightning behind him. That cover for The Dark Knight Returns will be aped, applauded, ranked among the most famous iconic covers of all time. However, it happened in Daredevil first. While I'm on that subject, let me do a little mini rant. Daredevil launched Frank Miller, who made iconic comic book tales. Daredevil springboarded John Romita into a very influential run on Spider-Man. Daredevil inspired the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Kevin Smith entered comics with Daredevil and now has a comic-themed television show on AMC. Brian Michael Bendis, one of the big architects at Marvel, arguably made his biggest splash as a writer on Daredevil. Even though Daredevil is a second-string character, although top of the second string, he seems to be a very potent muse to many. And that is an awesome thought. Okay, mini rant over, back to the issue at hand. Ben Yurk is kind of the smartest dumb guy in the room. So since we're on a bit of a Batman theme this week, let me reference Morgan Freeman from The Dark Knight. I'm going to loosely paraphrase a speech from that movie. Ben is investigating a successful lawyer who dresses up in costume and beats the crud out of extremely powerful bad guys with his bare hands. And you want to expose him? Good luck with that, Ben. But that is a crossroad we are going to get to. The crossword we're at now is the issue brings us a major first. Josie's Bar. Josie's Bar is the real-world equivalent to the Moss Eisley Cantina. Sure, there's no band with faces that look like butts playing the same song, but you'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And get used to visiting Josie's. This is where Matt likes to get information from stool pigeons and track down leads and one other pastime we're going to get to. Here he pulls another Batman-esque trick in coming to the bar in plain clothes, a la Matches Malone. That's Batman's underworld nom de plume. But it turns into a bar fight and things get ugly, pretty much business as usual at Josie's. Now Josie herself does appear. She's a middle-aged red-headed woman with a thick build. And she doesn't take kindly to this behavior as we see when she pulls a shotgun on Turk. However, she is powerless to stop what happens next. And for this, I need a little audience participation. Grab a drink of any kind... And if you need to pause the show and grab something from the fridge, do so. Okay, everybody got something? Here I begin a new tradition. Every time somebody or something gets thrown through the window of Josie's bar, as indicated in the synopsis, like it's an old read-along book chime, we're all going to take a shot of whatever we're drinking. So on the count of three, one, two, three. Fantastic. So, how was the issue overall? As a whole, it was serviceable. It began with an intense scene, then we go to the graveyard, then Matt mopes, and he swings for a moment, talks to Yurik, talks at the bar, and it ends with a solid moment. This issue's main function was setting up for the third act of this little storyline, but it doesn't move it forward with any real speed. It's talking heads for the most part, with some seeds planted for Matt and Heather's story, as well as the Yurik subplot. I know we were all wanting Daredevil to get a hold of Bullseye and commence a beatdown, but take solace in the fact that we have a Tombstone moment from Matt. Tombstone, the movie with Kurt Russell. You know, you tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. But the big climactic showdown will have to wait until next issue when everything hits the fan. But, if you're not already reading this issue and you want to check it out, it is reprinted. You can find it in the Daredevil Marked for Death trade paperback. Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 2. Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 1 Trade Paperback, and The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus Hardcover, and of course, Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. And now it is time to leave the pages of Daredevil and turn the floor over to you for your emails. And now, 
Emails to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. This week we have two emails, but they are at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of length. The first is from Eric McCarley with the subject line saying, Love it. And he simply writes, Love the show and keep up the good work. Thank you, Eric. Loving that you're loving the show, and I will be keeping up the work because we still have several years of episodes. I mean, there's just a lot of Daredevil to cover, and luckily every time I finish an episode, I'm ready to start the next. Now, next up is an epic email from Jared Cardos with the subject line, A metric crap ton of feedback for episodes 4 to 15. Yeah, I have no excuse. So Jared writes, With the cover for Daredevil number 43, while I see what you mean about Cap's turkey fist, the thing that bothered me about Cap here is that it looks like his skull can rival the leaders in terms of size. I have Marvel Digital Unlimited 2, and it's a pretty damn good service. Also, I have to recommend the Marvel Knights 4 run, or at least the first year of it. I'll definitely take a look at Tomb of Dracula as well. I don't know about DD not working in a non-urban environment, but I would say Batman can work. I mean, he was partly inspired by gothic horror, and one of his first stories involved him going to Europe and fighting vampires in an old-school castle. I definitely agree on Black Widow working as a sexy, non-sexualized character in Daredevil number 81, between her actions and the way she's drawn. Sure, the suit is skin-tight, but outside of having that idealized female form, she's interesting to read because of being a badass with a bit of a dark past. On my email... You say that a lot of people got into DD because of the Wade run, but my first exposure to him was actually from Bendis. If I were perfectly honest, and I know I'm going against the geek zeitgeist, but I wasn't a huge fan of Wade's run and dropped it pretty quickly. While I understand and liked the idea of Wade not trying to up the likes of Bendis and Brubaker and making Matt suffer, I felt like he took the opposite extreme and went too light and wasn't really using what makes Matt an interesting character. Plus the fact that it tied into one of the worst Spider-Man issues in years and continued a really long and dragged out mega crime story even after a crossover event with Avenging Spider-Man and the Punisher just turned me off completely. All that said, I do plan on, at some point, going back and trying again, maybe when you start doing coverage on it, with fresh eyes. Pun not intended. I didn't think of the whole eyes dynamic between Daredevil and Bullseye. That's pretty clever. Thank God I'm not the only one who, after hearing the emailer compare Captain America to a wrecking ball, got an image of Cap naked with only his mask riding around on a flying wrecking ball with his tongue hanging out to his side. Ah, imagination, it's fun so much of the time, but then suddenly it betrays you and gives you images you can never unsee, and now you and the other listeners can't unsee it. (laughs) The Man Without Fear is, without a doubt in my mind, one of my favorite Daredevil stories ever. I see what you're saying with how it's annoying to read as individual issues because it did get broken up weirdly, but as one graphic novel, as I first read it, it's a very smooth, powerful narrative. Speaking of the trade, I don't know if it's in any of the others, but in the version I have, as Daredevil Legends Volume 3, Miller writes at the beginning of of it a short one-page forward that I think concisely says what makes Matt Murdock a great character. And Jared copies the entire segment uh, for length and... For legal reasons, I'm not going to read the whole thing just to double check I'm not violating anything copyright wise. But Jared continues, on the reason why Matt goes to meet Elektra at her house. It's interesting that you thought of it being similar to Brad from last issue, where he's going to punish her. I could see where you got that idea, but I never saw it that way. After all, she hasn't really done anything wrong or hurt anyone or anything other than his own pride. I always assumed that he'd figured he'd meet her in her bedroom and actually got her to tell him what her deal is. On the differences with Elektra, how Miller writes her in Man Without Fear and his earlier writing of this same time period, after hearing this I have an idea of how the two could be melded with only some small holes, but I'll get to that when you decide to compare and contrast them. 
on the Kingpin scene, this might be weird, but I remember a while back when reading this and thinking of how this could work as a movie, ironic now since I learned that it was originally going to be a movie, and I thought there was a perfect person to play this small role of Rigoletto, Stan Lee. Just put him in a suit and an eye patch, let him monologue about the rules of the game, and then watch everyone gasp when the villain of the piece comes onto the scene and breaks Stan Lee's neck. You'd instantly have the most hated and despised villain in the Marvel movie history. On Mickey, while I get that the story is kind of in limbo in terms of continuity, I'm surprised that no one ever thought to bring her back for a story. Rereading this, she seems a lot in the same realm of Carrie Kelly in Dark Knight Returns, who could end up being his sidekick. Even her first appearance in the story has her using a slingshot, which seems like Miller's code in writing for a mischievous but plucky young hero. On the pink blood in the double page splash in number 5, the best reasoning I can think of is that it looks better with the green and blue background. Here's the thing with your argument about Matt killing larks. While I don't have a problem with him doing it, I think it can be inferred that he can aim where the bullet will hit. One could argue that Matt could have aimed for a shoulder or a leg first. I'm surprised that with going for the first issues of Miller drawing Daredevil, you didn't start with the spectacular Spider-Man issues where DD appeared to help the blinded Spider-Man against the masked Marauder. On the cap being too much a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent thing, honestly, I do like it a bit. I think the fact that a lot of his stuff nowadays has a bit of a sci-fi horror espionage feel to it helps make Captain America have his own unique stories, but I think that might be because the books that I've really read with Cap has been stuff like the Wade post 9-11 stuff and Brubaker's run, which might put that bias in me. Once I read some of the other classic stuff, who knows? Great episodes, Dave. I'm sorry to the massive length, but I tried to keep it to the thoughts I was really interested in. I'll try to be either a little bit more mercenary in them and or be more current on the show in the future. Jared Cardos. Alright, Jared, that was an epic email, so let me hit on some of the points that you made. First off, Cap's noggin. It was fairly big on the cover to issue 43, but not Sam Stern's big. It wasn't turkey big, it was like a game hen. And I will second your second on the first year of Marvel Knights 4. The series lost a bit of direction, but remained good. But the first year was firing on all cylinders. And to clarify, it's not that Daredevil doesn't work when he leaves an urban environment. It just isn't my thing. Like Batman, Daredevil and Gothic backgrounds can be fun. And I could see Daredevil in a scenario like Gotham by Gaslight, or somewhat of a Victorian setting, but... I connect to the character more as an urban crime fighter, and that goes for Batman as well to some lesser extent. As for the Wade run, I kind of want to dispel the idea that Wade doesn't make things hard on Matt because that's not actually true. Looking at issues 1 through 27 of the most recent volume, which is ending just as this episode is coming out, things are incredibly hard on Matt, and he's put into a position of fending off an unseen bad guy. The difference is, Wade makes it fun. He makes it fresh, and Matt has more fight in him. He's pluckier than he has been in a long time. Things are not wine and roses for Matt, but it's the character's perspective that changes and shows a certain maturity. Wade doesn't just heap stuff on him and weigh him down. He throws stuff at Matt, and Daredevil dodges some of it, but it all leads somewhere. I do think if you gave the book another look, you'll end up really enjoying it, and the woe-is-me element is gone, but still, it's a good, solid Daredevil story. Speaking of that, the Mega Crime crossover was actually an ongoing Daredevil storyline before the crossover, so naturally, Wade continued his long-form story after the crossover. The actual story was organic to the comic itself, and it happened to crossover with Spider-Man and Punisher. As for the text that you quoted there that I didn't read, that was the prologue for issue 4 of Man Without Fear as it's listed in the trade that I read, and I have no recollection of it being in the original issue itself. And on the topic of Man Without Fear, I think when I compared Matt going to Electra's house with Brad, I meant that he wanted to mess with her head. Not that he wanted to tie her up naked. Well, 
okay, maybe that too, but for completely unrelated reasons. But he wanted to teach her a lesson. He wanted to mess with her head. We just not, we're not really clarified on what that means. He didn't mean her harm or anything like that, but he wanted to take her down a peg. That's how superheroes flirt, dude. They stage small-scale invasions on each other's homes. But I have to say it, good on you for spotting the Carrie Kelly analog, because I sure didn't. I could say this was due to not looking for Dark Knight comparisons on my part, but really I just missed it. Straight up, and the idea of the slingshot symbolizing rebellious youth completely went over my head. Though for Matt, it was a billy club, which brings up the final point or counterpoint. I'm not saying that Matt didn't aim the bullet at Lark's head, but I am saying that Lark's wouldn't have taken a bullet if he didn't fire the bullet. Adding to that, I don't know how well Matt would be able to aim the bullet. The billy club in that scene was standard police issue, which was not Matt's more sophisticated versions that we have now. It was wooden, so it absorbs more of the impact. Now, it was probably steel reinforced, which is why it survived as long as it did, but the aiming capability is massively diminished. But, truth be told, it wasn't an accident that the bullet ended up where it did, but consider its origin point, it was Lark's own gun, still on Lark's. If Lark's hadn't been a killing machine, Matt probably would have let him limp away or get arrested. But thank you for emailing Jared. A lot of good points in your email. If the rest of you want to drop a line, you can do so at the handy contact form on the show's site, daredevilpodcast.com, or directly with the email address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. We have no comments or iTunes reviews this week, which is kind of a bummer, but if you're on iTunes, please feel free to leave the show a quick review. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of episode 16, but the show will be back in seven days to cover issue 161, where Bullseye's trap is sprung and it has a gasp-worthy moment involving the captive Black Widow. And remember, the final issue of the current volume of Daredevil hits stands this week, so go out to your local comic shop and take a look. It promises to be pretty epic. Until next week, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger's near. Daredevil fights for what is right. Daredevil fights for you tonight. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.
fight for 